Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. Here's a quick announcement. Our February heart-centered and passion-driven Inspirations for Better Living digital magazine designed to help moms build a better future for themselves, their families, and loved ones is now live at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. February's theme is the enduring power of love. The magazine offers inspiration stories from our dedicated team of experts to help you navigate your current situation with confidence in your motherhood journey as the COO, if not the CEO, of your family. So please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com and treat yourself to some engaging, entertaining, and enlightening stories. You deserve it. As for our radio show this morning, my guest for today is Chuck Weisner. Chuck is the president of Weisner Consulting. He is a thinker, a coach, and a teacher in organizational strategies, human dynamics, and leadership excellence. For the past 25 years, he has served as a business and personal consultant and advisor to leaders in high-profile companies in several industries. Chuck's clients list includes companies such as Google, Revian, Apple, Tesla, Harvard Business School, Ford, and Chrysler. He was the senior affiliated mediator with the Harvard Mediation Program and was among the first to be certified through the Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching Program at the Newfield Institute. Chuck was also an organizational learning and leadership specialist affiliated with MIT's Center for Organizational Excellence. The Art of Conscious Conversations takes a deep dive into the DNA of conversations, exploring the components and complexities of talking with others. With new insights, we can positively transform our interactions and relationships in our professional and personal lives. The book examines the how and the why of conversations and explores how we can reframe our thoughts, emotions, reactions, and interactions, increasing our awareness and improving the quality of our interactions at work and at home. As for our kitchen table conversation this morning, Chuck and I will be talking about his remarkable life's journey and how we can use his book, The Art of Conscious Conversations, to transform our communication skills by improving the quality of our interactions at work and at home to thrive in 2024. Happy Wednesday, Chuck, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. Wonderful. I am excited to have you on. Today is Valentine's Day, and we got to talk about relationship, communication, and so forth. And guess what? We're two guys talking about it. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> More of no that women required. Enough. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. The Art of Conscious Conversation is a wonderfully crafted and written book. The information offered is thorough, and incredibly informative, and an easy read. So congratulations on this release. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really happy it's out in the world. That's, uh, the whole point of writing the book was to take what I've been learning from my clients for 25 years and mm-hmm. put it down on paper so others can appreciate it and, and apply it. That's really wonderful. 
Well, let's get to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. And by the way, we do have the whole hour here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I will try to hit the highlights. Um, I grew up in a small, I grew up actually on a farm uh, until I was about five. And then we moved, um, we weren't working the farm, we were living on the farm. But then we moved to a small town of York, Pennsylvania. Um, and my father was working as a manager in a large manufacturing company. We, we were, you know, fairly poor, but not, not rags to, you know, not living in rags. We just had a, 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 a tough, a tough uh, financial situations often. And so, and my family was also, uh, was a challenge at times. I had three sisters, eventually I had a brother. And um, it was a challenge because my parents weren't always, my father worked really hard. My mother wasn't always happy. She was stuck at home with the kids. And, you know, part of me, what happened to me was I got involved in music at a very early age. I was trained classically as a percussionist from the age of seven. And so all through elementary school and high school, music was my life. It sort of like, I sort of got me out of my family life, out of my house, uh, to 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 play music and orchestras and 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 eventually um you know marching bands and eventually rock and roll um <laughs> and, <laughs> and that that was all i mean it was amazing music really was my life i was playing professionally i was teaching and then when it came time to graduate from high school i didn't get some great counseling and i was told oh just go to penn state and get a a degree in music didn't feel right to me because I was already in the field. So I didn't go to school right away out of high school. And that was the year that the Vietnam draft happened. And so I was the unfortunate one to be, uh, get a low number when the draft happened. And I knew that if I didn't do something, I would be uh, probably going to Vietnam. And so with my connections in the music world, um, I was asked to audition for a, the Pennsylvania Air Force National Guard Band. <laughs> wow. And, and that, yeah, yeah. And, and that was a, a savior because um, I did that. I auditioned, I got in. I couldn't, I couldn't go to basic training with the Air Force because the band had limited resources or limited slots. So I, was, I got, went to the Army, trained as a medic, came back to Pennsylvania and transferred into the Air Force Band uh, and did that for seven years. And so that was a remarkable trip with, with highs and lows, for sure. Um, meantime, during those seven years of, of, of guard duty, I started working in an architecture firm that was, was an idea of an art teacher of mine because she thought I had talent. And I got turned on to architecture and eventually moved to Boston to go to architecture school. Um, and fairly late, I was, I think I was 25 or something like that when I went to school for the first time. Moved to Boston, went to architecture school, absolutely loved it. And, and, and it was a long six-year slog. Um, and then I practiced in Boston for many years. Um, and then there was an event with, I became a partner at a firm and there was some problems with partner who became an alcoholic and we needed to figure out how to work with him and we hired in help and a woman came in to help us her name was linda reed 
and I was blown away by how she managed uh, our situation. She interviewed us individually. She talked to us as a group. She helped us manage through this. And I was wowed by what she did. And, and it, it sort of touched, touched my whole life. I had a sort of spiritual, psychological interest. And what she did felt like magic to me. It's like, holy mackerel, how did she do that? And literally that led me to change careers. So I spent four years studying uh, language and conversation and leadership. And four years later, I left architecture and started a whole new career. So, and that was 30 years ago. <laughs> Fantastic. That's wonderful. I've been working with leaders for 30 years. Yeah. I'm sorry. Wow, that was a long really awesome. story, I think. No, no, yeah. that's fantastic. What's interesting about it is that in your book, even you talk a little bit about this, and we'll get into it later, we are a mm-hmm. product of our environment. But then at the same time, does our environment really, do we have choices? Of course we do. So we'll go into that later. But you're right. Okay. It, we absorb all that, right? <laughs> and it makes yeah. us the person we are. That's fascinating. So I love the story about you growing up and things that you experience and so forth that when you talk about a soul walking around, I tell people it's like people may not see this, but in Asia, well, at least this was when I was back in Asia, the monks was walking mm-hmm. around with a bowl and people would put stuff in there, right? <laughs> Food and yeah. all that. And yeah. it's a collection of that. And that's what life is. It's a journey that we collect things to learn and nourish ourselves spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, so to speak. So that's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, we yeah, we <laughs> absorb all of that and, and then life life uh, takes care of itself sometimes. That makes a big impact in you in terms of making that shift. But interestingly enough, I mean, when you look back, one of the things that I look at architecture in itself, and even a musician, and I'm glad you mentioned about the fact that you were into music and so forth, that is a form mm. of communicative expression of oneself, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think both music is sort of like, I'm not sure who said this, but someone said music is like poetry in motion or poetry, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and then, and, and architecture is also a, a, a form of expression because it evokes feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really as an architect, you think about, you know, well, what, if, if you're a designer, you're thinking about, if I build this or make it look like this, it does it. What does it evoke for the? What does it evoke for the the person that's on looking? You know, right. So it, they're both very creative professions, uh, and I think that's sort of why I was attracted to both. Interesting, very very interesting. So how did you transition from being a pragmatic designer in a way? to a soulful mediator that focuses on the core of humanness? Well, it was really that, that lesson I learned from the, Linda, uh, the consultant who came in and helped mm-hmm. us work with our troubled partner, where, you know, it struck a chord in me like, well, I mean, I'm, you know, I was a good designer. I, was, I enjoyed architecture. I didn't reject architecture. It was yeah. the love of my life. But but it struck a chord, a deeper chord in me around the possibilities of better conversations and better relationships. And she she showed me some ways into that world that were mm-hmm. really attractive. And, they, and really, I felt it in my, I really felt it in the core of my body and my mind and my heart. And I mm-hmm. couldn't 
not follow that. I sort of was, I was just like, you know, I got to explore. <laughs> I got to learn more. I got to, so that's what I did. I learned about mediation and I learned about the, the you know, language and the ontology of language. And, and, and so that whole path, just, I kept exploring and exploring. I even became a body mind therapist. So all of that, I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I was following that strong, strong pull uh, mm-hmm. that I needed to know more. Yeah. Interesting. So it's very, very ama- amazing transition. Yeah, that's very interesting. So coming full circle at that moment in time in your life, and then when you look back when you're growing up, were there major influences that have actually sort of uh, sprinkled stuff in your life in that direction? Uh, yeah. Um I think that yes, I think think about major influences. I had a grandmother who was my mm-hmm. mo- on my mother's side, who who really really had had a had a tough life, um, but we took care of her. But she just adored me, mm-hmm. and you know when you have someone that loves you and that sort of showers you with praise and and reminds you that you can you can. You, you you have a lot to offer and you're good for the world and you get those messages, those messages stick. Um, and so that was a very positive influence. I also had a negative influence when my grandfather sent me, not on my father's side, it was a step-grandfather, <laughs> sent me um, negative messages. So I, it was mm. interesting that I had these two paternal grandparents that, 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 that were sending me opposite signals so th- th- that was really an interesting journey for me. And I, and also I became really interested in Eastern philosophy when I was pretty young, about 18, mm-hmm. uh, because of some experiences I had with, with ministers and religion. Um, mm-hmm. And so that opened my eyes up too. So I would say Buddhism and, and that sort of Eastern philosophy was very attractive to me and, and, and guided me in, in many of the decisions I made going forward. Very interesting. That's fascinating. When and what inspired you to write the Art of Conscious Conversation? Yeah, the I would say a good fifteen years ago, um, I had been working with. I had some great clients I was working with, and I was having cocktails with one of them, and he said, "You know, I love all these tools that we've learned in the last six months." Um, but I don't know how to connect the dots and mm-hmm. I can do this and I can do that emotional intelligence and, and uh, all the tools around advocacy and inquiry, but I don't know how to connect the dots. And that really stuck with me that, you know, yeah, there's all these tools out there, but how do they hang together? And that really stayed with me and it. And I thought about it and thought about it. And then I realized that the, the idea of four basic conversations, four types of conversations that I learned when I was studying um, language that um, that those four conversations were like a, a structure or a glue that helped all these tools together and connect them in a way that you, you could manage them and use them productively. Does that make sense? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all yeah. have the pieces of life, yeah. and that's yeah. why we have a discussion table conversation. Sometimes we got to put it on the table and. <laughs> And reorganize yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it really was that realization that the four conversations were like a great structure and a great way to hang it all together. 
and then I started thinking about the book and um, really it was a fairly long journey uh, to really get it to the point where I could find an agent and find a publisher and, and get it out in the world. So that's a whole nother story. <laughs> interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, please give us a synopsis of this excellent book. I love it. It's very thoroughly done, has all the help guidance and practices and so on. So I love it. The book is organized around four types of conversation. And um, those are storytelling, collaborative conversations, the creative conversation, and the commitment conversation. And they're all, they all weave in and out of our daily life at work and at home. But mm-hmm. when we take them apart, we're a lot, we, we get new ways of thinking about um, the conversations we're in so we can see them and hear them and think about them differently. Um, and that, that is really um, the idea of the book, to give us a new window into, a new lens into how conversations work, why they work, and why they don't often work. One of my teachers um, at one point said, you know, if I took you to Alaska or if I took you to visit Inuits up in, say, Greenland, mm-hmm. um, and we lived with them for six months and we learned their 25 names for snow, when we came back to New England, I'm, I'm from the Boston area now, mm-hmm. when we come back to New England, you would never see snow the same way again because now you have new names and new ways of seeing it and dis- making distinctions about snow that we would never, or how we see and think about snow totally shifts. And I like to apply that to conversations to say, when we have new distinctions about how they work, why they work and why they don't work, we can't innocently be in them without paying more attention and without saying, Oh, I could, there's a different way to do that. There's a better way to do that. Mm-hmm. So that is that is really the, the the idea behind the book. And then besides the four conversations, inside the book, it, it, there are four core questions. I call them archetypal questions that really um, help us dive into the, the 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 each separate conversation in a different way. And because each one, what we have are we always have these four things that are driving our rea- reactions and our emotions. We have our desires, we have our, our concerns about the future, we have power issues, authority issues, and we have standards that we live by that we mostly are unconscious of. So it's a combination of the four conversations and the four questions that sort of unfold uh, the, the, the new ideas about conversations. That's excellent. How did you come up with the four universal types of conversations? And please let us know about what they are. Yeah. So th- these were uh, distinctions about conversations that I learned when I was studying on the, the Art of Professional Coaching program. Um, and so it, it is a way of, of taking apart our conversations because we're in conversations that are almost, almost always on automatic pilot without really thinking about them. So these distinctions, these four conversations just give us a new window. So the storytelling means that we always, our brain is always creating stories for us to make sense of life. And we, you know, like fiction is a great thing and it entertains us. It, it does all those things that we, we uh, 
we love to enjoy. We have stories. We go to cocktail parties. We tell stories about our kids, about our work, about our boss. And we, and we have stories about ourselves and we have stories about others. That's all fine and good because it helps us navigate life. But also we have plenty of stories that have a negative edge to them. We have stories that are, are not uh, very productive or very, can be very harmful. And so the idea of the storytelling conversation is to learn how powerful it is, how it can help us, and how it can harm us. So the ones that we discover that aren't serving us, we can do something about. And if we do that, if we become more aware of our conversations and you know, our stories, actually, then we can be more in conversation with others because we are more aware and we become more interested in other people's stories. And that's where the collaborative conversation starts to get better because we can actually be in conversation. We can listen better. We can share ideas better. And that's, that's the art of collaboration which is the, the, the second conversation. Um, and when we're in that, when we do that conversation really well, we've all experienced this where we're, we're, we're really working with people and learning, learning together and get, getting excited. And all of a sudden ideas start bubbling up. Um, and, and that's the creative conversation, listening to our intuition, uh, letting ideas come up, uh, not, not shutting them down via judgment. Um, that's the, that's that whole art of that creative. Let that creative conversation go. Trust our intuition. Really co-create with others. And all of those opening conversations, stories, collaboration, creativity, they all come to a point where we have to make a decision. And that's the that's the, the commitment conversation, because that is mean. The commitment conversation is about the promises we make. Who's going to do? Who's going to pick up their kids at school? Who's going to lead the meeting? Who's going to make the strategy decision? We live in through promises at work and at home, mm -hmm. but do it often unawares. And so this conversation, the last conversation commitment, is helping us say, how do we do that better? Because we actually are in that conversation day in and day out making promises. It's like a chain of promises. But if one link of the chain breaks, then there's – there's trouble ahead, you know, because we lose trust in someone or we get angry with someone. Um, and, and so it's a very, very powerful conversation to pay attention to. Right, right. So true. Everything is a layup. We don't realize it, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. Of course, we don't realize it becomes a subconscious thing. But in every conversation, it starts out with that, so to speak, almost, for example. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that hit my mind Storytelling, right? You did mention about uh, we are governed by the experience we have because that's our story, good or bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, and the, when I mentioned my my uh, step grandfather earlier, um, yeah. the story I adopted from him was that I wasn't man enough mm. because you know my sisters could cry but I couldn't cry. Uh, <laughs> if I didn't like to go, if I didn't like to skin the deer in the basement, um, then I was you know not man enough. And literally, mm -hmm. without even knowing as a child, because he was the authority figure, I was a child, right. um, without knowing, we give those voices a lot of authority. Mm -hmm. And I unconsciously adopted a story that I wasn't a big enough man. Right. And right. that really, really was very much, I embodied that 
until <laughs> I was studying, until I was able to break that story and realize, wait a minute, there's no truth in that. That was his idea of what's true. That was his yeah. idea of what it means to be a man. And when I broke that story, it was mm -hmm. life-changing. Very, very interesting. That's your personal story in the sense that we walk through that. Interestingly enough, as you tell that to somebody else, though, because somewhere along the line, that was kept internal. Like, say, this is who I am. And yes. I thought that's who I that's am, right. right? Internal and, and mostly unconscious. Didn't know yeah. that it was driving yeah. my life. Yeah. Yeah. How did you were able to realize that, wait a minute now, that's not true. So mm -hmm. was it in the course of conversation yeah. with someone else that pulled that out? Well, it was in my studies uh, of, mm -hmm. of language, and I had my teachers were Julio, Julio Echeverria and Rafael, Rafael, uh, no, Rafael Echeverria and Julio Elia. Um, in my studies, uh, we one of the one of our pieces of work was to to look at stories that we held, both positive and negative, and how it affected our lives, and I needed i realized that that okay i i sort of had this underbelly story that's never really quite on the surface <laughs> of not being a big enough man and i yeah. literally dissected that and said well wait a minute what let me let me look at that and what are the facts in, involved what's it, what's what is the truth here well the truth was at that point i was six feet tall i was a successful architect i was <laughs> happily married with two kids Wait a minute. What is that? That doesn't add up. That doesn't add up to right. being a big enough man. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so I I slowly looked at the facts, looked at my emotions, how it was making me feel less mm -hmm. than others, and slowly I was able to what I call bust the bust the damn story, mm -hmm. and go. Wait a minute. There's no truth there. What's my truth? about what it means to be a, a good enough man or a big enough man. And, and I, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. There's right. a magic switch. But when I investigate it and really looked inside and say, wait, there's no truth there. It was like, it just, it just like fell, fell away. Mm -hmm. And the really cool thing is why one day I went to my office, I was still practicing architecture and the original partner was there and we were having coffee in the morning. We were good friends. We were having coffee and I looked at him. His name was Bill. I looked at Bill and in my, in my head, I said, holy mackerel, I, I'm taller than Bill. <laughs> and up to that, up to that point in my life, I saw myself as smaller than. Wow, and that was an that was an amazing moment. That's that's how strong that story, the, the, mm -hmm. how you know what what a stronghold that story had on my, even what how I saw myself physically. Wow, that was that's a powerful moment. Yeah, yeah. So within yourself, it's funny because conversations a lot of times people are thinking about. It's like I'm talking to you right now, but the yeah. number one so-called person that we talk to is ourselves. <laughs> Yes, right, exactly. Yes, <laughs> constant dialogue going on. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So that it's powerful. It's a, that self-realization, and within that, you were able to walk yourself through the process within you. Yes, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is the one of the one of the parts of the book that is very powerful is 
I, there's when we're looking at our stories, there's a, a good chunk in the book that talks about our public conversation versus our private conversations. Right. So the conversations we we say out loud versus the conversations that we that we have running internally um, that have a huge impact on our thinking and our interactions, but yet we're not often paying attention to them. And so, Precise. and the exercise that I lay out in the book, which was started by Chris Arduous back at the Harvard Business School many years ago, the exercise is you write down a conversation. As I said, she said, I said, she said, <laughs> as, as though it was recorded. And then you go back and on the left-hand side of the paper, you divide the paper in half. On the left-hand side, you write down what you were thinking and feeling during the conversation. What was I thinking and feeling when I said, what do you think about the deadline for the project? And she says, well, it's too soon to tell. What was I thinking and feeling during the whole interaction, during what I was saying and what she was saying? And that is an eye-opener for many people because even though that internal dialogue is running, we often don't step back to actually witness it and look at it and go, whoa, look at that. And, And it's very surprising for some people about how negative and how judgmental that private conversation is. Um, yes, definitely. It, it, we do it we do it to ourselves and we do it to others as well. Right. Right. So true. Well, we are our worst critic as well as we are our best cheerleaders in some ways. So you can cut it any way right. you want, right. but that's what it is. So the danger is which mindset are you on? <laughs> Right. And and are you can you have the courage and give it the attention it needs to look at the private conversations that aren't serving you well um mm-hmm. so you can actually transform them and go wait a minute there that I don't have to have that. I don't think that's true and emotionally that's upsetting so I can shift that. And that's where we can by paying attention and becoming more aware then we have the ability to shift or to change or to make you know, sort of practice interacting or thinking in in new ways, in other ways. Fantastic. That sounds really wonderful. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, MixCloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hot Popper. Here's a quick reminder to treat yourself to our heart-centered and passion-driven Inspirations for Better Living digital magazine at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. February's theme is The Endearing Power of Love. My guest for today is Chuck Weisner. Chuck is the president of Weisner Consulting. He is a thinker, a coach, and a teacher in organizational strategy, human dynamics, and leadership excellence. For the past 25 years, he has served as a business and personal consultant and advisor to leaders in high-profile companies in several industries. Chuck's clients list includes companies such as Google, Revian, Apple, Tesla, Harvard Business School, Ford, and Chrysler. He was a senior affiliated mediator with the Harvard Mediation Program and was among the first to be certified through the Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching Program at the Newfield Institute. Chuck was also an organizational learning and leadership specialist affiliated with MIT's Center for Organizational Learning. 
The art of conscious conversation takes a deep dive into the DNA of conversations, exploring the components and complexities of talking with others. With new insights, we can positively transform our interactions and relationships in our professional and personal lives. The book examines the how and the why of conversations and explores how we can reframe our thoughts, emotions, reactions, and interactions, increasing our awareness and improving the quality of our interactions at work and at home. In our kitchen table conversation this morning, Chuck and I are talking about his remarkable life's journey and how we can use his book, The Art of Conscious Conversations, to transform our communication skills by improving the quality of our interactions at work and at home to thrive in 2024. Chuck, you mentioned a little bit along those lines about mindful agreements, I believe. Yes. So can yes. you elaborate that a little bit more, please? Sure. Um, the idea of mindful agreements, or we could say mindful promises, because mm-hmm. agreements really are a form of a promise, is realizing that they happen so automatically in our lives that it, we sort of just, are often on automatic pilot. Hey, can you do this? Sure, I can do that. <laughs> um, can you help me with this? Oh, sure, no problem. So we, we, we sort of like run on autopilot without realizing that every promise we make has an impact on our tomorrow. Every mm-hmm. promise we make either asks us to do something differently in the next minute, in the next hour, in the next day, or someone else. So it's an action conversation that really um, changes changes relationships and changes how we coordinate action with other people because that's how stuff gets done at work and at home. We have to coordinate together. We say, you know, who's going to do what by when. And so the idea of being more mindful says when we take this conversation, slow it down a little bit, and we take it apart and we deconstruct it a little bit, take it apart, we go, oh, wow, every time someone asks me to do something, it's more complicated than I think. So, for instance, you know, um, at, at a, in a business setting, someone might go by their assistant's desk and say, hey, can you get me some slides from Monday's board meeting? And the assistant says, sure, no problem. The assistant goes off and works on that, the, the slides for the week, for all weekend for his boss and delivers them to her on Sunday night or Monday morning. And, and she look, takes one look at them and says, these aren't, these aren't what I wanted. These aren't, these aren't, no, these aren't good enough for the meeting. And so all of a sudden he's up, the assistant is upset, the boss is upset and they have to really, you know, scramble to get things done. She goes, never mind, I'll take care of it. And she does it herself. Now, she says, I, I just can't trust him to do this in the future. He's upset because he failed. That's an example of how a quick promise can lead to distrust. An example of how a quick promise or a sloppy promise or a bad promise can lead to people uh, being, being stressed and actually have lots of, lots of um, bad arguments. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so when we become more mindful of for instance, in the boss, let's call her Julie, asked Fred, the assistant, like, can you get me slides? Okay, now let's slow it down a little bit. Fred says, who are the slides for? 
what do you want to accomplish in the meeting? Do you like bullet points? Do you want pictures? And he asked three or four questions to understand what she, the standards, the quality of what she wants. Um, he has a chance to go, yeah, you know, I wanted to do this and I want to do this and this is the point I want to make. And then he says, so when is the meeting? And she says, it's noon on Monday. Now he knows that he has to get it to her ahead of time, so she needs time. But without that, he just gets it to her at 10 o'clock Monday morning, and she doesn't have time. She has to scramble. So slowing it down, asking questions, because there's always time issues. There's always issues of what would good look like? What standard are we talking about? There's always issues of why do we want this? What action are we trying to promote? Um, who has the power? Who has the authority? Who are we giving it to? There's these. There's like six or seven questions about what do we want, what's the timing, what's the quality, uh, that, that when we slow it down, we make better promises. And guess what? Mm-hmm. If we make better promises, we create trust with one another. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the real fundamental reason to, to, to have mindful commitment conversations. Very interesting. And again, it's one of those things where the intentions are good in the course of trying to do things right, you may not do the right thing. Right, exactly. Oh, yes, of course. You know, we when when she says, "Can you get me slides for Monday's Monday meeting?" and he says, "Sure," he, you know, he says yes because he wants to please his boss. He says yes, <laughs> and he's willing to work the whole weekend to get it done. Great intentions, right? But, but you know, a, a, a you know a sloppy, too quick promise made. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know. When we go into the business world, it gets a little trickier because there's hierarchies. And, <laughs> right. and is it right. safe to ask my boss? Is it safe to ask my boss questions? Do right. you know? Is it safe to do this? So you know, there's a responsibility on both sides to say, you know, let's let's slow down here just for five minutes so we can make a better promise. And and for 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 the receiver or for Fred, it's like I want to ask questions because. I want to do a great job. I want you to be happy. And for the boss to say, let's, let me explain to you what I want in more detail so you can fulfill my promise so we're both satisfied mm-hmm. in the end. So right. either party can take responsibility to, to push the pause button and, and ask right. some good questions. Right, yeah. right, right. So true. That's very true. What are negative conversations habits? Okay, so we, we're all different. We all have different mm-hmm. – I like to call our negative habits patterns. Mm-hmm. So we adopt patterns from our families, from our social, cultural sort of environments, from our friends, from our experience. We adopt patterns that sometimes don't serve us well. It might be judgmental patterns. It might be uh, – patterns where we are internally sort of like like my not not enough man story i'm internally sort of insecure insecure patterns we might have patterns of perfectionism so the 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 patterns that we have the reason i like to think about them as patterns is it takes a little bit of the judgment out and i can say you know what wow that's interesting pattern and I don't even know when I adopted it, but it's, you know, maybe I adopted it from my family. Maybe I adopted it from <laughs> a, a work experience. But it's yeah. a pattern that's not serving me well. And if mm-hmm. we can step away from it a little bit and have a little distance and we witness it and go, wow, 
I, I recognize that. I don't have to be hard on myself. Let's not judge myself for a negative pattern. Let me understand it so I can change it. So I can say, wait a minute, I don't have to do it that way. I can do it this way. And so what the so negative patterns are around judgment and self uh self uh degradation, you know, self uh mm-hmm. judge I'm sorry, self judgment, judgment of others. And and so when we look at them, that's when we have the opportunity to go, wait a minute, I can make a shift there. And right. and that's that's the that's the awareness and then, then the practice. You know, the the small steps to say, wait a minute, I don't want to do it this way. I want to try this out. And we have a practice where we can try something new. And and I don't say this lightheartedly. These are very deep sort of internal um, explorations and investigations that we do. But they're also enlightening. I mean, they wake us up. They say, wait a minute, I can do better. Um, and, they, and they're lifelong practices. There's no magic switch. Right, right. The whole idea too: Are you focusing on the positive or the negative? That's right, exactly. A big thing. Yeah. 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 Are you willing to look at the? Are you willing to take a look at the ones that are not serving you well and that mm-hmm. are negative? Right. And interesting thing about it is that the negative is always about you. If you look at positivity, then it's always areas of opportunity, so to speak. Yes. Yes, I agree. So, how can people break free from it? Okay, I think the way I like to advise people is to think of tracking, like like you know you know like if we were a, <laughs> uh, a a really great American Indian and we're tracking the tracks of a an animal, um, mm-hmm. so like paying attention and tracking the habits and the patterns that don't feel good, that don't feel right, that upset us, that have an emotional charge. And just track them and go, wow, what can I put a name on that? And then name it. Track it, name it. Go, oh, oh, there's the there's the worrisome Chuck. You know, there's the guy that worries about everything. <laughs> and 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 you know, and and then so the, okay, there's the worrisome Chuck. Well well what's the opposite of that? Well Maybe there's a hopeful Chuck that could sort of balance things out. So you name it, you track it, you name it, you be honest about the emotion that it drives, because our thinking drives our emotions, not the other way around. And and then you 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 look at the emotions, what's the thinking underneath, and go, wow, I didn't even realize I had that deep story about myself, and I can change that. So and then and then it's a pra- then it's like I said before if we take small steps to change we don't have to you know it's never going to change overnight but we by tracking and paying attention we take little baby steps and we catch ourselves you know tomorrow I might catch myself the worrisome chuck and go whoa I I did it again <laughs> and you know maybe two weeks later I catch myself ten minutes after I do it until until I'm more aware in the real moment. So there's tracking, naming, practicing, and, and shifting. So that that's it, it, it takes some effort, but boy, right. the, the, the end result, the enlightening result is very, very powerful. Right, right. So true. Well, you're making a conscious shift, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's like working a muscle. It takes a period of time, and then yes. somewhere along the line, the equilibrium shifts. 
Yes, exactly. Right. They're, they're, yeah, and they, and when that happens, there we sense it. We have a feeling. Mm-hmm. We have a, you know, it's it's heartfelt. We go, oh wow, right. wow, right. that is that is full. That is heart opening. <laughs> that is loving. You know, yeah. that is empathetic. That is compassionate. That we know when that shift happens, it's a great, great feeling. Precisely, precisely. It's basically the energy is from within, and you just totally experience the new you, a different glow. Right. <laughs> so <to speak. laughs> Yes, exactly. Probably was already there. We just had to uncover it. <laughs> precisely, precisely. We've moved the negative aside so the positive can bubble up. Yeah. Precisely. Just letting it loose now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you share a success story from someone who applied the principles from your book to their personal or professional life with exceptional results? Yeah, so I had a I had a client, uh, let's call him Josh. Okay. Um, he was uh, an African-American manager in a very uh, a big Fortune 200 company. And um, he was ambitious. Uh, he thought highly of himself, and a new position as director came up in his division of the company. He was a manager, and he was convinced that that job was his, that he deserved it, that he was the best of his team, uh, that he's been putting in his time, and he just was convinced that the job was his. So he did the interviews. Um, multiple layers of interviews, and um, two weeks later, he finds out that he did not get the job, and he is crushed. He is absolutely crushed. Now, coincidentally, that's about the same time that one of his leaders said, you know, why don't you start working with Chuck a little bit? Um, and, and the leader was trying to give, get him some help, uh, having me as his coach or advisor, so I find out, our first session, I find out this is what happened. He's saying, I'm so upset. I've worked so hard for this company, and they they didn't give me what I deserve, blah, blah, blah. That was his story. He had a big story going on about what should happen. And, you know, and ironically, as we worked together, we he realized that his story was incredibly arrogant. He thought he was better. He thought he was more deserving. And ironically, his story had him showing up the opposite way that he should have been showing up if he wanted the promotion, ability to collaborate with people, ability to to work things out with people and make good decisions. He was showing up as arrogant, as, you know, he had all the answers. He was being the, 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 the smartest one in the room or always had to be the smartest one in the room. And when he realized that that story was driving his behavior, we worked and he busted that story and realized how wrong he was. And he became, he transformed. I mean, he became a different kind of leader where he put aside his arrogance, realized that, you know, he had to be equals with people. He didn't have to put away his competence, but how he showed up changed. And he transformed in a way that that was it took months and months of working but he transformed and eventually he did become a director um, and eventually he became a vice president of the company so that was just 
a remarkable transformation, all because we were able to bust that one story uh, that right. he was holding. Right. And again, the intentions are good, perhaps because at that moment in time, he felt that it's like the old saying goes, well, you know, I got stripes on my shoulder here. I got to act like one. And that's right, exactly. the real yeah, him. Yeah. And so he has that sort of a, that armor or the shield or whatever you want to call it. But then what people actually like is the authentic him, the softness. The leadership skills are already in there, or the knowledge, for lack of a better term. It's not what you say, yep. it's how you say things, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, that, and leadership inside hierarchies is, is a, it's mm-hmm. a terrible trap because people believe right. that once they get the stripes, I have more stripes, I have to be smarter, I have to do this. Right. But it, right. in fact, the opposite is true. The more stripes you get, the higher you yeah. get, the less you can know about things, and you have to rely on good people. You have to have collaboration with other people. Um, so, yeah, so that was remarkable. And, you know, I've also worked with leaders who are great leaders who just want to stay on top of their game. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the work we've done and the, the ideas in the book help them transform how they lead meetings, how they make mm-hmm. decisions, how they give people feedback. All those mm-hmm. things are other ways that the material uh, serve, serve people in the, in the work world. Fantastic. Is that the significant impact that has taken place in the communication strategies of your various corporate clients upon receiving your insights? Yeah, I think it it, it, it varies. I think there it varies from the very personal sort of waking sure. up, sort of, <laughs> sort of personal <laughs> enlightenment, like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to be that way. I can be this way, to right. much more practical, oh, wow, it gives them a new window on why meetings work, how they can work better why right. we don't give people feedback, the emotional qualities. Literally, mm-hmm. we, you know, as we understand emotions and our thinking better, we mm-hmm. become more empathetic, we become more compassionate. I have a mm-hmm. great leader who has incredibly high standards of, of quality of work, mm-hmm. um, but he's also incredibly fair um, and, and not arrogant and, and, and lets people do their work. But if, but you have he's fair because he says, here are my standards, here are my expectations, so they know ahead of time. But if they don't meet them, he coaches them. And if they can, if they can make the ride they, and they can rise to the occasion, it's great. But if they don't, he can softly let them, let them know that, you know what, you're not ready mm-hmm. for this. You know, maybe you should go do something else. But right, so there's right. this quality of, of high standards, but fairness and empathy um, of, of applying uh, all these conversational tools. Right, right. So true. Please tell us about recovery conversations and why they are essential. Okay, so what I, I mentioned about sloppy promises or bad promises, <laughs> um, even even if we make a good promises, uh, make, make a good promise, but something something happens in life that we can't deliver or schedules change or you know, weather changes, whatever, life happens and we can't deliver. The idea of recovery conversations is to to recognize that when we make a promise and one person is expecting something and the other person is acting on uh, to to fulfill that, life doesn't always cooperate and we we don't have a good, we don't have a good result. The idea is when we don't have a good result, not to sort of go down the path of, oh, boy, I can't trust Fred. I can't ask him to do that ever again. Instead of going down that path, 
to have a recovery conversation, let's explore what happened. I have a complaint because I asked you to do something and what you gave me was was less than satisfied. How did this happen? So it's a, a recovery conversation is is actually a, 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 a an idea to say, let's explore how this went wrong. And I might have a complaint, but if I have a complaint, but it's not fair to you, like I, I could say, I think Julie could say to Fred, you know, you didn't deliver. But then Fred could say, but okay, and here's what we, I didn't know what you wanted. And I jumped to the conclusion and I made up a bunch of assumptions. So they both can go, oh, so we, 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 made, it, we made that promise in a bad way so nobody understood. That, that then says, okay, now the recovery conversation says, how do we do this better the next time? So it's not about blaming, but it's about investigating and then saying, can we do better next time? Can we do better tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, it, it's embedded in the kind of complaints we make in a, in, a, in, a, in a positive way, like let's explore what happened, to an apology where I didn't fulfill the promise. And I get to say, you know, I, I realize I didn't fulfill it. I'm really sorry. What, what are the damages? How can I help you recover from this? And by the way, in the future, here's what I'll do differently. Those are right. that's how recovery conversations sort of help us. Instead of going the path of distrust, we we lean into the path of like, how can we do tomorrow better so we can trust each other and build trust together. Right, right, so true. How easy can people adapt the art of conscious conversations framework to suit their personal relationship and, of course, workplace interactions? Yeah. Uh, okay. So that that is the personal relationship. With Happy Valentine's Day, um, <laughs> everyone. Uh, <laughs> when I was learning all of this, um, I had a lot of impatience with my wife's readiness. It's like if we were going to dinner, if we we're going out on a date, <laughs> or we were going to doing thinking of the kids. I had a lot of impatience because. My standard of being, I had a, a high, I had a high desire to be on time with things. My standard was to get, my ability to get ready to do something was very quick, and she was always running late. And I realized by applying this idea of what are my standards, what do I want, what are my concerns, what are the authority power issues, those four questions I mentioned earlier, when we apply yeah. them, we can sort of take a look at something that's not going well. Like this, this, this impatience of mine was causing a lot of stress between my wife and I. I, I learned that, wait a minute, I'm applying my standards of how life should be and realize that my idea of getting ready takes me 10 minutes. I come in from the garden, I put a fresh shirt <laughs> on, and I'm ready to go. My wife has a whole other routine that's important or what she's going to wear and you know, does she want to need to wash her hair and you all those things that didn't, you know, and I learned that, okay, well, she has a different standard. So for me, that was my lesson. I didn't want to change her. I was like, saying, right. oh, okay, I'm applying, I'm applying the life, the world according to Chuck versus the world, the world according <laughs> to my wife. That's a, and, and so, <laughs> yeah. And, and that was like, that was me learning patience. Mm-hmm. Um, by by asking those questions, what what do I want, and what are my desires, and what are my concerns, and why am I so frustrated about being late, and standards. So I think with the understanding the four types of conversations, 
Because mm-hmm. uh, we can all get jumbled up, but if we understand them a bit and we and we apply these archetypal questions, we can do good self investigation pretty fast. Yeah, you know that's yeah. why I like the four questions because we don't have to go into psychotherapy for a hundred years. We go, well, okay, what's my thinking under my emotions? Because our emotions are a reflection of our thinking. They're right. like a physical manifestation of our thinking. So we start looking at why am I think, feeling this way? Why am I feeling judgment? Why am I judging? And we look underneath. We discover a lot about the patterns that we have that might not be serving us well. So true. That's fantastic. Wonderful analogy and wonderful example. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Um, so my book is on Amazon.com, The Art of Conscious Conversations. Or you can go to your favorite bookstore, which helps me out if you order it at your bookstore if they don't have it. Um, and then my Instagram is Chuck underscore Wisner. And I'm also Chuck Wisner on LinkedIn. And oh, my website is Chuck wisner.com c-h-u-c-k w-i-s-n-e-r dot com um, those are easy ways to, to, to find my work and um, read a little bit more about what I'm up to fantastic what is next for you Chuck well I'm, I'm I've been writing a bunch of articles um, for different magazines which are really fun um, and I'm thinking about exploring that more. I'm also contemplating another book, uh, which I'm not ready quite to reveal because I haven't quite landed landed it yet. Um, so, you know, I'm slowing down my consulting practice. I, I have private coaching clients and private advising clients. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping my hand in that world, but uh, really focusing more on writing and uh, also giving talks. I'm, I'm really looking forward to giving giving talks in places where people would like to hear more or introduce my work to a larger audience. So if anyone needs a speaker, reach, reach out and let me know. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. As we're closing this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yeah, I think right now, given the state of the world, the two words that stick with me right now are kindness and tolerance. And kindness, because none of us are perfect. We're all lovable, imperfect human beings. <laughs> and so to realize that, that our, our, even our, someone that's stressing us out or our enemy is trying to live their life or is living their life the best they can, they're a lovable idiot or whatever, but you know, we, we, we can be kind. And tolerance, because I think we've fallen into these traps where, where where certain ways of thinking so that it has to be this way or that way. But as we get out into the world and look around and we have so much access to the world because of the Internet uh, and technology, there are so many ways to be in the world, who we love, how we love, what we do, what what is good for the world, but tolerating differences of opinions. And, and, and toleration, being tolerant allows us to be in conversations to understand one another rather than be in conflict with one another. So true. That's beautiful. Chuck, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Wednesday morning 
February 21st at 10 a.m. Central Time. My guest will be Dr. Connie McReynolds. Dr. Connie is a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor with more than 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation counseling and psychology. She is the founder of the Neurofeedback Clinics in Southern California, working with children and adults to reduce and eliminate conditions of ADHD, anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma. Dr. Connie and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her latest book, Solving the ADHD Riddle, The Real Cause and Lasting Solutions to Your Child's Struggling to Learn. To help parents guide their child back to a life that is fully functional, happy, and successful. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a very blessed week. Chuck, it's been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again and wishing you and your wife a very happy Valentine's Day and a very blessed 2024. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on and, and, and uh, guiding our good conversation. Oh, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. 